Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, innovators, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show, where I connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship with my guests. Today's guest is an urban technologist. We talk about urban design, how cities are developing, and an innovation district in Barcelona. Please welcome to the show, Ocean Jangda. Hello, Ocean. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Jens, I'm great. How are you? I'm also great. Looking forward. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, likewise, man. Always Talking to you is always a good time. Yes. But we, before we go into, of course, urban design and the innovation part of urban design and whatever we come up with, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, amazing. I'm looking forward to getting into that stuff. Um, man, Jens, I don't know if we've talked about it previously. We've had many interesting conversations, but I'm not sure if my my real background has come up that much. Um, I'm from Alaska originally, which is uh, every time I, I tell that to people in Europe, they say, man, I've never met someone from Alaska before. So I've gotten used to that. But um, I've been all around. I lived in Australia, New York, Colorado, um, traveled a lot spent some time in Croatia and now I'm in Spain with, uh, with you. <laughs> awesome. So how, how did you get into to Spain? I mean, living in Australia, I could, could think, yeah, I, I could stay there New York the same, but then for, <laughs> I mean, Barcelona is also nice, but it's, how did you end up in Spain? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's funny. And when I was a kid, probably like seventh grade or something on the on the wall of my bedroom next to my bed i had this picture of the costa brava which is the this the area of spain north of barcelona very beautiful area and uh, i just thought it was incredibly beautiful i i didn't know much about spain um but i started to learn later a little bit about uh, barcelona and uh, uh a lot of about um i'm an architecture buff so uh it was mostly <laughs> european architecture that i was interested in And uh, a couple of years ago, when the opportunity sort of arose for me to focus on education again in my career, it had been five years, four years since I graduated undergraduate, um, I was looking at you know the opportunity to go to school in Europe. Um, not only is it a lot more affordable than getting a graduate degree in the States, obviously, but it's also a, you know an opportunity as an American to go live abroad. Uh, something I did briefly in my undergraduate. Um, I did a study abroad in Croatia, which was... I was like, man, I love Europe. I got to come back here. And I thought, okay, I'm in my, my mid-20s. I have no responsibilities. I have an opportunity to go live abroad. Why not also uh, feed two birds with one crumb and uh, get an education at the same time? So I found a, a program that's hopefully we'll get into that. But um, it's uh, right up my alley in urban design. And it's here in Barcelona. Yeah, awesome. And then you're a cyclist, I still remember. 
<laughs> I am. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not a triathlete or anything serious like you're doing, but uh, there's few things I love more than than jumping on my um, my road bike and uh, and ripping around the city of Barcelona or in the hills. Um, I've done some pretty cool trips around the world, um, but I'm really just dipping my toes into that, and it's something that I believe. For me, sport is is one of the big loves of my life, but I've never been very competitive about it. It's just something I do for myself, for my for my health, and for my enjoyment. And uh, cycling is one of those things you can do for your whole life if you if you stay healthy, right? So it's something I'm dipping my toes into. <laughs> so tell tell us about your trip. Uh, um, you have been cycling kind of around Mallorca, or at least on Mallorca, which is yeah. a, for those who who don't know especially maybe the Americans. It's a small Spanish island on the coast of Barcelona, basically. So yeah. how did that happen? How did you decide to kind of go go and do a cycling holiday? Well, I had a week free. <clears throat> I thought, uh, you know, what is, what, is, uh, what is there to get up to in Spain? And, you know, the list was very short. No, I'm joking. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's like 45 minutes flight from Barcelona to go to this, you know, paradisal, Mediterranean island that is Mallorca. And it turns out that Mallorca is also like a European mecca for road cycling. Um, all the guys that train for, for the Tour de France and so on that would typically train in the Alps um, in the early season, you know, um, April, May, it's, it's pretty messy still in the Alps, a lot of rain and snow and stuff. So what they all do is they all take their training camps down to Mallorca and uh, the island is for a couple months just crawling with all these professional cyclists. And of course, I, I read about this on the internet. I think, oh my God, I gotta go see this. And uh, just so happens I have a friend back uh, from Denver and Colorado where I used to live. And uh, she was like, man, I, I wanna go to Europe, have an adventure. And she's the type of person uh, similar to me where we can't just go sit on the beach for a week. So we said, okay, what if we, you know, we get road bikes, we go around the whole island, we make a whole tour of the thing and we really put it together ourselves, rented bikes. Uh, we got bike packing bags. Uh, I'm a, a huge nerd for the gear so i'm happy to go into that stuff but uh, it was amazing we did uh, a few hundred kilometers around the island uh Safa montana mountains and uh, it was an incredible experience awesome did did you plan stay staying in the tent or or was it like uh lodging or like hotels? no we we were doing credit card minimalism <laughs> <laughs> so we stayed in a, in a new uh hotel every night which is just an adventure in of itself Uh, but yeah, we just kind of planned it out. We looked at all the maps and we thought, okay, how far can we go in a day? How far makes sense? Uh, and then we kind of mapped out the zones we would be in at the end of each day. We booked hotels in those areas and, uh, yeah, we just said, fuck it, let's go. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. Yet, yeah, you but, can. Uh, that, that, that was the whole attitude. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I would love to do that one day. Maybe, maybe we, we, we manage that together. Would love to. Well, I mean, I said, when last time I came to Saracosta, I said, Should I bring my bike? And he said, no, no, we're going to be doing all these innovation things. So don't bring the bike this time. But next time it's like on my list. Man. Yeah, that was all about work. There are days where I'm working <laughs> most. of. Yeah, the well, you were you were working, but it was also it was just an adventure for me. Yeah, just just giving a little context for the listeners. Ocean has been here for the first international innovation jam and he was a speaker, um, which was awesome. And that that's that's where we basically dove or where I got a little bit more 
um, about you and you talked about um, urban design where I said, hey, I would love to have you on the podcast, not just because you're a nice dude and, and we have fun conversation as well, because I think there are so many innovation topics in this urban design um, which are not, not kind of well known to people who are not from the industry. So I, I thought that that would be an interesting topic to explore. If we start high level, I mean, you're, um, what is it called? It's it's urban technologist or you're studying urban technology, whatever. You, yeah. <laughs> explain, yeah. explain what that is for people who have never heard about that, including me. Okay. Um, I'll explain, I'll answer your question. And then if you're, if you're okay with it, I'd like to step even back a little bit further to give some even better context. Absolutely. Um, so the, the program I'm in right now, um, it's at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, which is a, a very small, um, urban research and architecture Institute. Um, and what they do essentially is they look at the fields of architecture and the fields of urban design, urban planning. And they look at essentially how is technology changing these fields? How is uh, technology changing the approach that, that professionals in those fields actually take? Um, so it's fascinating to me because I love cities. I love architecture. I love urban design, real estate development. Um, but I also really love technology. And it's one of the few places, um, there's two or three other places in the world probably that are doing similar things. Um, one of them is the Sensible City Lab at MIT. Uh, we have relationships with them. And then uh, there's also uh, an organization that's associated with TU Delft in the Netherlands. And basically all these organizations are trying to answer this question, how are our cities and the component elements of cities like buildings and so on going to be uh, thought of, designed and, and built uh, going forward? Because, yeah. you know, yeah, for those folks that are not huge nerds about this, like I am, um, cities are almost like an emergent phenomena. Uh, um, they sort of happen. And it's only recently that we've really gotten serious about planning cities, about designing spaces intentionally, um, going beyond just the design of like a building, like in architecture. Um, but, but also it's only really been in the past 50 years that um, serious, you know, paradigm shifts in technology have started to occur. So the, the ground underneath urban design and architecture is really shifting quite a lot. And, um, and that's changing how we think about about those fields. So that's what we look at. And then you use technology as part of that, if I understand that right. Yeah, yeah. Um, specifically, what we do, we're looking at what technological tools are changing and um, and essentially what are these professionals leveraging in terms of technology to do better work yeah. um, so a lot of what we do is focused on data um, there's there's a really a lot of data that cities are producing constantly buildings are producing data our personal devices like our phones are producing data um, you know infrastructure like traffic signals and um, and so on, everything is producing data. And the question is, uh, data is cool and all, but it's only useful if you understand how to use it and, and how can it be applied in an actual effective way to, uh, to inform better work, better urban design, better architecture, better infrastructure, and so on. So we look at, uh, at how that's all coming together. And it's, it's, um, 
is fascinating because half the stuff we look at and half the stuff I'm learning, it's like, man, it didn't exist 10 years ago and 10 years from now it's going to be totally different. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's shifting quite quickly. So it's, it's less about learning specific tools. Like for example, we use uh, uh, Rhino 3d, um, you know, architects and, and design people will be familiar with that. It's a software for 3d modeling. And we also use grasshopper, which is a program that runs within Rhino to uh, use uh, visual programming languages to generate designs based on data, based on information. And it's like, that's fucking cool. But in 10 years from now, I guarantee you, it's going to be something completely different. So it's not necessarily about the tools. It's about how do we think about using technology in this context in order to, uh, to become more effective uh, practitioners in the field, essentially. Yeah. Maybe getting a little bit practical. So when I was working with, it was not real urban design, but I was, at, at the time in my career, which is almost about 10 years ago, responsible for real estate and working within real estate inside of IKEA. And we looked into how do we kind of find the white spots inside of a country to find out where can we place another IKEA stores to not cannibalize the other IKEA stores, which I guess all retailers do in, in, in one or the other way. But because an IKEA store is fairly big and has a huge impact on the city, we always looked into what is changing when you kind of put an IKEA um, spaceship into or connected to a city, what is changing with the city environment. And 10 years ago, there was, I mean, you have had rudimentary data from Google about traffic. Um, we, we looked into all of that, but the smartphones the the real data like you you most probably have today is not not too was not accessible for us so it was more kind of uh, a good feeling and and kind of being in the city to figure out what's happening and driving in traffic times where you see oh uh, yeah it's fairly busy today it's monday so that was more about like let's say high level at least rather than going deep into analyzing maybe even using ai to figure out what's going on well, it's right. it's quite interesting right. how right. that's changed. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's very interesting to me because um, I'm a student of real estate development, um, and that's sort of my particular interest. And it's interesting because if you know anything about real estate development, the history of real estate development, particularly in America, um, it was for a long time the Wild West. It was uh, entrepreneurs and people with capital and um, big balls and big ideas who were willing to risk everything to make something happen. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with the, the fruits and the consequences of that now today in America. But what's changing is now that, you know, the gut instinct of, okay, I, may, I think it makes sense based on my intuition, based on the knowledge I have of this area, that this IKEA spaceship should land here. That's never going to go away in my opinion like the gut instinct or the intuition or the design sense of the human designer or practitioner um, is super critical Um, but what's different now is that it's not just that anymore Um, now it's we're really augmented with all of these data tools and we're in this transition period where we're going from a time when it was just about moxie and and design intuition and business intuition into a into a phase now where all of these tools are starting to mature and and we're 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 in a weird transition phase where most of the tools are not mature yet they're they're testing they're experimental they're uh 
programmers who are moving fast and breaking things as it were. And uh, that's a really interesting phase to be in when you're studying this because everything's moving and shifting. And uh, I can guarantee the field is going to look completely different 10 years from now than it does, you know, 10 years ago or today. Yeah. The interesting part of that for me is it's kind of the technology angle is the fastest ever. And then the real estate business angle is the slowest ever. So it's kind of the, the two opposites are meeting each other. Because if you take a building, um, if you build a proper building, they're, they're lasting for a couple of hundred years if you build it properly. And sit, right. if we look into city development, you're not building a city to reinvent it after half a year. Because like, yeah, we have figured out we should have done it differently. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, look, an interesting take on what you were just saying there, which I think is a really good point, is slightly theoretical. But I think it's just interesting to put it this way. I was trying to do some of this in my, in my talk at the Innovation Jam, which is just to reframe how people are thinking about these things a little bit, right? And to be mm. uh, slightly provocative. But if you think of the city, the almost the most functional framework to conceptualize a city nowadays is in a more um, organic, ecological, metabolic sense. The, the city is really like an organism. You know, if you zoom out, if you were to have a perfect 200-year uh, time lapse from space of a city, and then you were to look at the uh, metabolism of a cell under a microscope, you would think, man, those are very, very similar processes. So what's going on there? Well, in my opinion, in my, in my understanding of this, um, cities are like an organism. And if you think about the scale of a city, then you think about the, uh, the, um, the time scale at which the metabolism operates. For example, if we look at an ant, we think, man, that thing's going a mile a minute. Is is really fast. They're all kind of flooding all over each other. And if you look at an elephant, we think, man, that thing is really slow. It's a lumbering beast. And that's just because we're in the middle of a scale with, with an ant on one end and an elephant on the other end. In other words, our perception of, of how fast things progress has to do with the scale of our bodies as organisms. And so if you think about the scale of a city, it's so big compared to us that the, the actual metabolism, how fast these things change is extremely slow, right? The lifetime of a city might be thousands of years. Um, so if, if you think about it in an organic or anatomical sense, a city is like an organism it's, that lasts thousands of years that's going through these organic processes. And so, yeah, the technology might be moving like lightning right now, but the reality is it's bumping up against this sort of organismic force that is extremely large in its timescale and extremely slow to change. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, contrast that you bring up there. Yeah. And then in, in the middle of all of that is the human factor where you have people who are kind of also not the fastest changing species on earth. I mean, of <laughs> course, everyone is saying like, yeah, I'm up for change as long as it's not affecting myself. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the opposite, right? Where, uh, I'm not even going to think about how I'm changing if it's the easy thing. Exactly. Right? And it, we've had some fascinating conversations about, you know, how much of working in, in innovation is just about getting people to change their behaviors or to change their perspective on something. And it's totally true of the city too, because, you know, people are just going to uh, go with their inertia, their cultural inertia and um, take the path, path of least resistance. So if Google 
uh, invents, you know, navigation through Google Maps, and it's brilliant and it's easy and it improves your life, you're just going to you're just going to adopt it. And yeah. that is going to change your pattern of movement through the city. And you don't even think about it like that. You're just like, oh, it helps me get to where I'm going more easily. It accounts for traffic or whatever. So there are tools that get introduced or technological changes that result in behavioral changes without even people thinking about it. And yet, as a whole, we're very slow to change because it takes a lot of incremental things changing in order to create these sort of large shifts that, we, that we're experiencing now. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a big one. I mean, I have learned driving without navigation systems. Today, basically everyone is driving with a navigation system. And if, if, if you take myself here in Zaragoza, I haven't been driving too much because um, I'm more a cyclist like you are. But if you, if you take away the phone, I, I need to figure out where, where, where to go and how to get there. And if you're not yeah. used to that anymore, then it's kind of, you're, you're kind of it feels like you, you lower your IQ to figure out where you are because you just follow the phone and then it, it's gone or it's not working or there's no, no, no signal. It's like, okay, how was it again? Because normally you have this scale where you understand, okay, this is the house, this is the street. I've seen this before. I've walked there or I've, I've, I've took the train there. I, that was the bus stop. There was someone sitting at the corner. And if you just use the phone, a lot of people are just not seeing that anymore. I see that a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, well, you're touching on a much broader thing, which is just that, you know, we've really augmented our, uh, our brain with our, our devices, you know, I mean, it's very much true that our, our smartphones are like a prosthesis for our brain. <laughs> right. And I mean, like, if you ask me to log into some website without my phone and my thumb scan, like, I, I don't know the passwords. They're all saved yeah, in my phone. And my, you know, if, if you expect me to get across the city without Google Maps, that's a loaded question because that's like where my genius lies, which is like orientation and, and direction. Yeah. So it's an unfair question. But, but it's so true that we've just become completely reliant on these systems that are augmenting us. They're not part of our natural skill set. And yet we become expert at them. Like everybody that uses uh, Google Maps to get to work or whatever is an expert using Google Maps because it's so simple. Yeah, and so you're you're a superhuman in a way with these tools, but then without them, you're like, <laughs> what is it that I'm actually missing here, and what what is it that I can do without these tools? That's a good question for people to ask themselves. Yeah, and sometimes that's why good. I love uh, that. Sorry, that's why I love going out in nature and going on these bike rides and stuff because it's like, what can you actually do <laughs> without your phone? <laughs> I was exactly trying to say the same. It's what, what I intentionally do. I I'm not using it quite often. Um, to navigate, definitely to navigate. It's like it, there's nothing better than going out for a bike ride where you have no idea where you go and then you figure it out on the way and you, then you try to remember how, how to get back. <laughs> I mean, you have yeah. always the backup worst case. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. I 100% agree with you. That said, it's fascinating because, for example, we were talking about this bike trip I was on in Mallorca and uh, Mallorca and the Spanish, uh, uh, Balearic islands are interesting because they're full of these old ancient Roman roads. So it's, you know, unless you're on the freeway in a car with where the signs are pointing you everywhere, it's very difficult to navigate. Yeah. But with these modern apps like Komoot, uh, or ride with GPS, they give you these turn by turn directions. So we have, I had this superpower of putting one AirPod in having my phone navigate me through 
and we're just riding our bikes through the countryside, but it's saying, Hey, turn left here, turn right there. And, and ma almost magically I can get from one city to another with perfect efficiency, never making a wrong turn. And you know, the, the straightest path. And that's just, I don't know. It's fascinating. It feels like a superhuman, uh, a superpower in a way. Yeah. Let, let's get into innovation. So one part we, we discussed quite a bit was kind of urban design and linking that to innovation and um, one thing that fascinated me is that you're basically living in one of the innovation districts in Barcelona. Can you give us a little bit of understanding what the innovation district is about? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't uh, exactly intentional, but I ended up living in one of the, the neighborhoods in the world that is uh, most closely oriented to my interests. It's one of those serendipitous things. The neighborhood in question uh, is often returned referred to as El Pueblo No in, in Barcelona. Um, that's a bit of a, uh, it's not quite quite accurate. Uh, it's actually more like the St. Marty district, but um, there's two sections of the St. Marty district that have been essentially um, designated by the government of the city government of Barcelona as uh, special zones for economic development. and. You know, arguably, it's not technically an innovation district by the modern uh, uh, terminology because that's come to, to represent a very uh, tightly defined thing in real estate. Um, but it's a space in the city that was previously quite degraded. Um, it's the ex-industrial district of the city. Um, Barcelona was known for a long time as the Manchester of Spain, uh, the Manchester of Catalonia. In other words, it was uh, very productive in the Industrial Revolution with a lot of uh, industry. And when the Industrial Revolution started to taper off, a lot of that industrial space became disused. And um, so this whole you know, section of the city was really quite degraded. And so the city said, okay, what is it that we can do here to turn this around? And essentially, they came up with a plan. It's called the 22-at plan. Um, essentially, they said, look, we're going to draw a, a line around the areas that, are, that are, have the most degraded industrial assets. And we're going to implement special urban policies to essentially occur, encourage your revitalization. And that was in the late 90s. Um, for those folks that know Barcelona, they might know that the, the Olympics were, were in Barcelona in 92. And after 92 and leading up to 92 Olympics, um, there was a lot of urban development that was going on, a lot of investment in the city. And so what came out of that was this plan to revitalize this whole, this whole section of the city. And um, the principle, the concept is that the city wanted to attract technology companies uh, into what is this highly degraded space. This is fascinating to me because this is a pattern that's played out in a lot of American cities as well, where you have an industrial district that's run down and the city puts in special policies in order to revitalize it. And it, it uh, over the course of 10 to 20 years becomes consistently the most expensive neighborhood in the city. It's a fascinating thing, right? Um, so I'm living in one of these areas. Um, and also the school I study at is, is in the 22 district of Polonau. It's a fascinating place to, to, to research this because it is probably arguably the first in the world place to do this specific set of policies. And now it's been sort of formalized and replicated all over the world uh, in the form of innovation districts.
Yeah. Can you can you give a couple of examples what happened in details inside of that district and what the impact is on the people living there? Yeah. So um, one of the things is you have these uh, factories that essentially went out of business and the owners, the proprietors stopped taking care of them. So they became uh, sort of degraded. So if you have multiple large industrial plots that that happens in, in the same area, you essentially have a concentrated mass of real estate that's completely underutilized. And to give some folks perspective on, on sort of the physi physiology of this, this neighborhood is a five minute uh, uh, metro ride from the center of Barcelona, which is one of the most you know, lively tourist destinations in the world, right? And yet you had all this degraded infrastructure. So they said, okay, we're going to put in policies to incentivize technology companies and developers to redevelop these faces and, and see what happens. And so the result of that has been that all of this real estate has started to get this sort of um, positive feedback loop around it. The revitalization of specific key uh, cultural buildings um, and, and the repurposing of those buildings into technological uses has sort of kickstarted this. It's, it's really a positive feedback loop. It's not to say that there's not unintended consequences or negative externalities of that, but it's this upward spiral where everything gets more and more valuable. And um, from a real estate perspective, that's obviously fascinating because there's a lot of people making money and so on. But also from a cultural perspective, it's really fascinating because before these spaces were, were you know, degraded industrial ghettos. And now you come to them and they're full of galleries, startups, um, shops, restaurants, bars, clubs, and it's all young people with money. Uh, and so it's a very interesting sort of transition that this space goes through as a result of that, that positive feedback loop. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. I mean, I just imagine the people who have been living there for quite a while, they have their assets there. Maybe they have even their apartments, which means, I guess, at least the whole value of the whole area goes up, which means also the wealth of the people who have been maybe not so well off in the beginning are is increasing in the same way. So it's also a beneficial thing yeah. for the people living there. Yeah, well, I mean, you're touching on a broad uh, third rail, which is gentrification. And, um, and this idea that, you know, if a place is poor and it quickly becomes rich, inevitably there's going to be a lot of people that uh, that don't necessarily become rich with yeah. with the neighborhood, right? They're not one-to-one. -one. They're not tied to each other necessarily. Now, if you're a property owner and your property tripled in value over the course of 10, 15 years, that's terrific, objectively, um, as long as you can afford the taxes. But if you were a renter, you don't live here anymore. So yeah, there's the, the idea of gentrification is something we study a lot at the Institute. Um, it's very complicated. I'm, I'm happy to dive into that wormhole if, if you're interested in going, in going down that route, but, uh, but I have a lot to say on that topic. And, and it's, you're exactly right that, that it's not just clean, um, perfect upward spirals all around and everybody's, you know, uh, rainbows and butterflies. It's like, uh, it's pretty complicated. Let, let's dive deeper because for, for me, it's the, the effect of innovation. So the idea was or the vision was, hey, let's revitalize the area, bring technology companies in. 
But of course, that has consequences in a lot of direction, positive and negative. And I, I just want to dive a little deeper to what does it mean for the people living there in a positive way and in a negative way? At least what do you yeah. know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, look, the idea, I personally don't like the term gentrification because it's typically skewed in a negative light. Like we don't want to cause gentrification, right? Or gentrification occurred there. Therefore, now it's this rich ghetto where it's only rich people are blah, blah, blah. But it's, in my opinion, it's too low a resolution of a term because gentrification is actually a complicated process of things that occur altogether, some of which is extremely desirable and some of which is extremely undesirable. So the desirable aspect is that a space that was underutilized and degraded gets revitalized and enriched with a new life. You know, objectively, no matter who you ask, that's a good thing. That's what we want for all of our cities and all of our neighborhoods. The problem is that the value of land prices increases in that process. And so if you're a landowner, if you're a property owner, that could be a good thing. If you're a renter, it's objectively a bad thing because, you know, if, if that was where you could afford to live because it was a degraded area, you no longer can afford to live there. Yeah. So that's what we call displacement. So what happens to all the people that previously were living there because it was affordable, where do they go now? And that's a, it's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, you can only build so much affordable housing and it really depends on where you are and what your government system is, what your development system is like. Um, that problem is different in different areas, but the reality is that, uh, if you, if you displace whatever proportion of the population is renters, those that the culture of the place is devastated yeah right it's like if you live in a suburban neighborhood for example or an apartment building imagine if you know 60 percent of the people in your neighborhood have to move out the culture and the the social fabric of the place is totally destroyed so that's obviously a negative externality of this gentrification process and so the the question is not how do we avoid gentrification that's too low resolution the question is, how do we revitalize and re-energize places in our cities that are degraded while also making sure that the people who live there because it's affordable still have a place to live and that the culture of those places stays intact? And that's an extremely complicated question to answer in practice. Yeah, but I think that these are topics in, in the place where we are in right now in the world. I think these are more and more topics we need to talk about rather than how can you just fix one problem? How do you do that in a way that you take everyone on board and you create kind of a win-win situation in the best case? And yeah, yeah. I, I, I can imagine, especially in city development and design, it's not, not the easiest part. It's not, it's not. And I'll just say briefly in response to that, that, that um, the worst outcome is that one group of stakeholders who have an incentive to improve the neighborhood, get free reign. And, and so, for example, that is the prototypical story of property values rising and developers building building um, luxury apartments and, and everybody that's poor just fucking off, basically. Yeah. Right. And what we really try to focus on at, uh, at IAC here in Barcelona is 
how can we how can we make sure that all the stakeholders who are relevant have a piece of the pie in the process of transformation yeah because when everybody has a, a seat at the table the outcomes are different right because um because things are just a little more balanced and things still have to work financially and you still want to arrive at the ultimate goal of improving and revitalizing the community. But uh, it's important that everybody has a seat at the table so that those things happen in a sort of balanced way, as, as, ba as balanced as is possible. You know, it's not, uh, not always perfect. Yeah. Speaking about community development, I'm, I'm geeking out always on community inside of the corporates and how important that is to build kind of a possibility to engage with each other, taking that into the context of urban design, how much is that a focus of, for example, what you study and what you do? Yeah, I would say it's like 80% of what we do. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of corollaries between what occurs in a company or between companies in a business environment and what happens in a community, a physical community, a neighborhood, uh, a development and so on, right? It's a lot, as you say, Jens, it's a lot about managing the expectations of the people involved and, you know, coaching and um, guiding people to what is an inevitable sort of new way of living. Because as you well know, people are resistant to change. Yeah. You know, that's just our nature. And uh, big cultural changes whether it has to do with your workplace um, and, and your work and your career, which is a lot of what you, you do, or whether it has to do with where you live and your neighborhood and your community, like it's very personal and um, making sure that through the process of change, people are on board, right. And you don't lose someone somewhere critical. Hmm. It's almost everything in the whole process. Yeah. And it's, for, for me, it's a lot about valuing the people as they are and as well their feedback and then engaging them, like you said, on, on, on the journey. And that's always hard. I mean, I, I have been in situations, if, if we go back to IKEA, building an IKEA store is always you have people who are happy that there's an IKEA store coming and there, there are always people that are not too happy that there is an IKEA store coming. It's It's the same... In, in other topics in this world. And then it's kind of, you have the mayor who is kind of, let's say, if you take it as an organizational structure, who is kind of the leader of, of the community. And then, and then you have all the different political parties and everyone tries to kind of, in the world where we are living in right now, everyone tries to get their power and get their kind of stake, stake in it. And then a lot, the, the people living in that area, they're kind of the, the, the people that are not too much involved. And that's a, a positive thing, um, what I've seen in IKEA in the development. And then I stopped talking about IKEA. <laughs> but <laughs> what, what they did and learned as well to basically what you said, engaging the communities around the world early, early on. So I was working with a project in Japan where we did interviews before even we planned the store interviews of the local community to understand how they live, what they are doing in that space, in that area to, to dive deeper. That gave us a little understanding. I mean, it's, it's still surface, of course, when you do uh, just a couple of interviews, but in the end it's kind of 
a stepping into that direction to engage with the community and building a community around it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're you're touching on something. Uh, by the way, I don't mind you bringing up IKEA every ten seconds because <laughs> let's let's be honest, your, your time at IKEA and and IKEA as a company really lends itself to a lot of really interesting corollaries. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we've had many interesting discussions about IKEA. So <laughs> yeah, it's twelve years of my life. So and it, right, it was right. yeah definitely twelve it's of fair the enough. best. If you ask me to not bring up anything in the last 12 years of my life, I'll tell you nothing but childhood memories. So uh, it'll be fair. Uh, but, you know, I think I think you're you're touching on something interesting in terms of, again, this corollary between companies and, and cities and communities, because what's what's happened over the past 30 years in the business world is this, you know, globalization on an epic scale. Um, and the introduction of the internet and supply chains and the, the, the true mixity of the international form of business that, that is today's business environment. It's, it's something that has created these strange pressures, right? Um, where you're having, like, for example, in, in the U.S., is this whole narrative about manufacturing jobs going to China. Right, that's something that's happened a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Manufacturing moving from from uh, developed countries into now developing countries, and basically what what that is, in essence, is it's a it's a shift on the playing field. The playing field of business has gotten much broader, and all of a sudden, the environment in which individual companies are competing is much wider and much more complicated, right? So the exact same thing is happening with cities now because essentially what's happened is that the most talented um, people, the most productive people, uh, the most well-educated people, um, they have the ability and the incentive to go wherever they're treated best. So if you have, uh, so just to make this concrete, you have a lot of people in India and China that go to the U.S. to get an education and then they stay there afterwards in order to take advantage of the opportunities that education affords them, right? So that's a matter of immigration, but it's broader than just immigration. It's a matter of a city by city level of competition where if one city is doing something extremely poorly, there are other cities who may be doing it extremely well, right? And so you have this whole global stage, which is a battle for talented, for the most talented people. The most productive people, the most productive companies and so on are gonna go where they're treated best. And so the same thing that's happened in business over the past 30, 40, 50 years is now happening with cities and with geographies. And that is the whole impetus behind initiatives like the 22 Actors Stick Barcelona. How do we bring talented people from wherever they may come from into Barcelona and to stay here to work? So it's a very interesting corollary between business and cities that I'm always going back to. Let's get into the last part of the podcast where I'm asking a couple of questions kind of not related to our conversation so far. If you yeah, can brilliant. work with a project that is impacting every human being on earth, what project would you like to work with and why? 
Well, look, I'll bend the rules a little bit because I don't think it would be every human being, but I think it would be one of the things that affects, you know, probably the most people of any project possible, which is to say uh, uh, cities, because about, uh, you know, we just surpassed in, in the past few years, 50% of all people in the world living in urban areas. Um, projections range, but roughly they're putting that number at going to say 70% by uh, 2030 to 2050. Um, and I would, I would wager my, my money on, on uh, us landing somewhere around the Pareto ratio of 80-20 with roughly 80% of people all over the world living in cities. And so I think that when it comes to the protocols for our cities, it comes to the policies and the way we approach building, designing, and implementing cities and urban environments, it's incredibly important. Um, when it comes to anything from climate change to uh, cultural tensions to immigration, it all has to do with cities, if you really look at it. So I would say it's something to do, and I know this is very theoretical and abstract, but but it would be something to do with the protocols about how we actually run and operate our cities. Yeah, that's an interesting one. What advice would you give to a young innovator? I mean, you're young, but a younger, even even a younger <laughs> innovator to, towards the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I consider myself a young innovator or, or uh, if we're going by Josh Nuttall's uh, lexicon, I'd say I'm a young thinker. But uh But yeah, no, I, the advice, the advice I, I know for sure, it's, it's very clear to me and it's going to sound a bit obtuse, but the reality is the best advice I could give to a person, let's say in their late teens, maybe they're starting school or, or so on. And they're curious about this idea of innovation. They're pursuing the path of innovation in their careers and their interests is It's just my philosophy of innovation in general, which if, if it's okay with you, I'll just lay it out in 30 seconds. Of course. The, the basic principle to me is that innovation is about doing something in a new way that's better, right? Because you could do something in a new way that's worse and it just fizzles out. It has to be better than the thing that came before it. And, and so it's about improvement and it's about trying things and experimenting. And through that lens, the key to innovation is about being yourself. It's about being uniquely who you are as an individual in your personality. And I'm not a psychologist, but I, I really am a huge nerd for the field of psychology. And the truth is that, you know, from, from when we're young kids, we carry a lot of baggage from our childhoods, the things we go through and the adventures we take as people. And it's my personal opinion based on my personal experience and also just observing other people that the truth is that we just, we carry a lot of that baggage completely unresolved, right? Yeah. And with enough unresolved baggage, we are so focused on just surviving that we completely fail to get really in touch with who we are as people in our personalities. And if you expect to be an innovator while not being, you know, intimately in touch with who you genuinely are in your heart, good luck, good luck to you. Right. Because you have to be comfortable with being different. 
you have to be comfortable with being a bit weird. I'm the first person to raise my hand and say that I'm a freaking weirdo. Like I'm weird in so many different ways, but I'm at peace with that or I'm in the process of making peace with that. And I know that has nothing to do with career advice. It has nothing to do with my field of interest, but it's just the simple truth that when you start to address those basic things in your, in your character that may be holding you back or keeping you from being focused on being an individual and being unique and expressing yourself authentically, you're two steps away still from actually what innovation even is. Yeah, super powerful. What is the future topic that interests you that is not connected to your profession? Man, um, <laughs> I love this question, yes. <laughs> uh, that's great, that's great. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of techno and dance music and raving. Uh, to those of you who have been to a really good rave, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, music has always been a really important part of my life since I was a kid. And um, the thing with, with techno parties, techno as a genre of music is very futuristic. It's all about computers and really high-tech sound systems. And then a computer, uh, human in the middle of the thing who's really making, working it out and making it fly. And, uh, and uh, the production and the computer technology and the speaker technology that goes into a good rave, a good dance party, is really on the cutting edge. Every year, there's a new technology that's making the parties better. So for me, uh, if I look 10, 20, 30 years into the future, what these parties might be like, that's completely fascinating to me. Um, the spaces, the physical real estate spaces where these parties are hosted, I know that's related to my interests, <laughs> but, but just the, the experiential drama of going to a really good cutting edge dance party with high tech sound and high tech production, where that's going is super fascinating to me. And I mean, 10, 20 years from now, old people will be looking on this, at these parties going, what the hell is even going on? I can't comprehend uh, uh, what's happening here. And that to me is just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I still re remember my early techno parties in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, well, you're a German, so I can't even, I can't even, uh, even begin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Ocean, how, how can people reach out to you and where can people find you? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at Ocean Jenga. Um, I'm actually right now in the process of building a website, which will be out soon. Maybe by the time this comes out, that'll be live. Um, but uh, Twitter is a good place to get in, get in touch. Awesome. And of course, I will put that as well into the show notes. Ocean. Yeah. Thank you very much for being on the show. I'm looking forward to go cycling with you. We, we will manage to do that one day. Man, yes. I'm super happy to have come on the show and to talk to you. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor. And I, I hope that we have a chance to, to get to... Look, you have to see my bike. It's amazing, man. I need to see what you're riding <laughs> as well. This is where we nerd out together. So uh, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You will find the links and resources in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is subscribing to the show on any of the podcasting platforms and give me a review. This will help me to reach more innovators around the world and bring some of you into the show. If you have any questions to the guest or want to engage with me, feel free to reach out to me on social media and contact me there.